This podcast is brought to you by Voice of Vets. Voice of Vets. Hear it. Feel it. Feel it. Feel it. Greetings, salutations, and welcome to another installment of the COVID Report, the show dedicated to providing you with comprehensive coverage of the coronavirus pandemic. I am your host, Kamele Kewagwapovana, here to give you another installment of the show that gives you all of the facts, all of the stats, all of the figures, and none of the misinformation as it pertains to all things COVID-19. On this edition of the show, we are exploring how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected women and their access, their ability to access sexual and reproductive health services. We've explored multiple facets of the ways in which the COVID-19 pandemic has changed people's lives, the ways in which the COVID-19 pandemic has made life even more difficult for any given group of individuals within our South African society, our ability to access our basic needs and services. And when we zero in to the COVID-19 pandemic in particular, looking at how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected women's ability to access sexual and reproductive health services. Health pandemics can make it more difficult for women and girls to receive treatment and health services. And this is compounded by multiple or intersecting inequalities such as ethnicity, socioeconomic status, disability, age, race, geographic location, and sexual orientation, among others, which influence access and decision-making to critical health services and information about COVID-19. Meanwhile, women and girls have unique health needs but are less likely to have access to quality health services, essential medicines and vaccines, maternal and reproductive health care, or insurance coverage for routine and catastrophic health costs, especially in rural and marginalized communities. Restrictive social norms and gender stereotypes can also limit limit women's ability to access health services. And all of this has particular impacts during a widespread health crisis like the one we are currently facing. Joining us to unpack this matter, it is my absolute pleasure to welcome psychologists on to the COVID report. Palesa, good evening. Thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the COVID report. Good evening. Thank you very much for having me. Absolute pleasure to have you on the show, Palesa. Now, when we, when we speak on this matter about the ways in which the COVID-19 pandemic has impacted women's ability to access sexual and reproductive health services, how do we make sure that the provisions for standard health services continue, especially for sexual and reproductive health care during widespread health crises like the one we're currently facing in the form of this COVID-19 pandemic? I think you know, the, the, the first place is kind of listening to the people who it affects directly, and that is the women. Um, paying attention to where it is the, the, the loopholes tend to find themselves being exposed and then trying to hold and carry them as much as possible in those spaces. Now, coming from a psychological standpoint, it's just about paying attention. You know, um, that's the nice thing about uh, a psychological space is that if something is of dis-ease within your body, it will automatically symptom, um, symptomology, well, into the symptoms show itself out. So if we pay close enough attention and ask the relevant and intentional questions about you don't seem to be okay, what's going on? How can I give you assistance in this moment? And more than anything, what do you need? And then acting on those desires that the person places before you, then it'll be a very easy and quick way of, of catching those who find themselves often being missed and overlooked. And just to follow on from that then, Palesa, what would you say are some of the long-term catastrophic consequences of overlooking the importance of addressing the sexual and reproductive needs that women and, and girls may have during the course of a pandemic? And how do, um, how do these 
catastrophic consequences measure up when we compare a period where COVID-19, this COVID-19 pandemic wasn't a part of our lives versus mm-hmm. the, our, current, our current circumstance where it is a part of our lives? You know, that question is very widespread, and I think it goes from context to context and person to person. But just in a general sense, very often you find that the, the, the consequences align themselves strongly in feelings of vulnerability and lack of support. So it could be anything from, you know, feeling um, out of control, therefore anxiety increases, and, and, we, and, and at the moment we're seeing it at very much higher rates. Anxiety around what is to be expected, what do we do when the unexpected shows up. But in addition to that, you know, just in terms of women in particular, after the, 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 the sexual reproductive space stage, in terms of having a child and then becoming new mothers, for example, higher risks of um, postnatal depression. These, these um, symptoms and symptomologies tend to be widespread, and it's very hard to directly pinpoint in, in specific, but it's those mood-based disorders. You know, um, differentially to but prior to us having this pandemic, we, we do find that access and the, the ability to obtain the support that we need is very, very different. So we can kind of come into contact, but we're missing that physical touch and that hugging and embracing, which can, in the nurture space, give you something that a conversation often can't give you. Gives you something that, you know, um, just a sense of getting a hand out doesn't necessarily give you. So we're missing out on that man-to-man, woman-to-woman contact. We were able to rely on others and not just have to stand for ourselves. Those pressures seem to be a lot higher right now. And that notion of the strong black or white woman in this instance does tend to come more into the conversation. That we're expected to be a little bit more independent. And it's at a time when we don't know what to expect and how to move forward in those um, undesirable expectations, for one, but unknown expectations, too. So it's, it's, it's a very difficult double-edged sword to try and handle. Palessa, do you think that the pandemic has amplified or heightened any existing inequalities um, when it comes to um, uh, women and uh, girl children and their access to these very important health services? Are there, uh, again, I would like to try to paint a picture of whether or not the situation as far as these degrees of access has either um, worsened or perhaps even gotten better um, over the course of uh, the, the, the last two and a half years of our lives where COVID-19 wasn't a part of our lives versus now where it is part of our lives? It has worsened in some instances, especially from a female perspective, primarily, as I'm saying, where um, where things have to now be handled and the expectation for their handling comes in more so from one man standing by yourself point of view. So as I was saying, you know, the accessibility to the report that one might need or might often have expected or knew that they could rely on is not quite as easily attainable. And again, it's primarily because we don't know what to expect. We don't know how to roll with the punches because often the punches tend to kind of change direction once we think that we've got a handle over them. So the expectation in that regard makes it a little bit more difficult to be... A partnership within a relationship, because as you know, when you just can consider in terms of um, the gestational period in and of itself, where a partnership could go in and therefore able to to take care of a child or take note of how it is a child is growing in in the reproductive space. Um, now the, the woman has to carry that by herself because partners are no longer very often allowed to go in for extended periods of time. And even at that, when it is time to actually start taking care of the child after um, the, the, the prenatal stage or the postnatal stage, should I rather say, then 
the managing and the, the negotiation of that is also very, very difficult because now we need to be separating and extending or distancing ourselves as much as we can in order to protect the soul and um, this, this new individual that we've introduced into our lives. So where the support from extended family, from friends, or just being, you know, the unifier, you now have to start taking a different perspective of trying to ensure that this, this new individual that you've introduced is well taken care of from a germ and, and, and um, a health standpoint, if that makes sense. So we're having to handle them a little bit differently and reassess the perspectives in which we kind of engaging um, how it is we, we, we support from a distance, we um, aid from a distance, but also we interact from a distance. It's, it's, it's harder, I would say. And I'm aware of how speculative my next question to you might be. But mm-hmm. considering the fact that we are at a stage in our fight against this pandemic where uh, the the number of vaccines that are being administered across the country is, is increasing, um, whether or not it's increasing at a fast enough rate, that's up to the individual to answer back to. But as we move closer to a post-pandemic era in uh, this country and this continent by extension, do you think we will be able to see an improvement in the health of women and girls in Africa by developing guidance on the implications of gender-based violence, access to sexual and reproductive health, and what more do you think needs to be done at government and leadership level to to to, to increase awareness and um, get that conversation going about increasing the amount of access to these important services that girl, children, and women are in need of? I mean, in answering that, I definitely say that my response is a hopeful yes that things will. Um, we'll get better to some degree. You know, when it comes to any type of um, social-based issue, irrespective of where and in what direction you're looking at, it's about understanding the ground level and meeting the people where it is they are. And when it comes to the governmental standpoint, you know, coming from, as I'm saying, the psychological stance, you have to be willing to to lo- lower yourself and, and, and meet us where and how and where it is they're coming from. And once that, 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 that bridging of the gap can be done without there being any judgment or any um, speculation as to what it is would be best outside of the individual involved, then a lot of um, growth and, and um, development can easily be achieved. But how and to what extent that can be done, depending on the short space of time that we are dealing with all these changes from a day-to-day space is something that, you know, only we can speak of in the future. But as I'm saying, it's, it's a hope-based stance. It's a, it's a conversation in and around, meet me where I am, understand what it is I'm trying to say, and then ask me how it is I will best receive the things that I speak of. We tend to do it as human beings in the general sense, that we take our own observed objectives and we then make decisions because of what makes sense for us, what seems to be of more comfort for us and what benefit us. And that is always a backward way of trying to provide assistance. It's about an intentional conversation from a stance where you are trying to improve as opposed to um, um, impress. And if we're trying to impress, then we'll always find ourselves on the back foot. And that's why I think government and just general organizations and societal organizations need to find themselves starting from asking the questions to the people who are the ones who are struggling the most. So it's intentional conversation and an intentional ear to listen. 
Now, we mentioned earlier in our conversation about the various things that this COVID-19 has exposed as far as inequality across the board. Now, I'm aware of uh, how little reference I have to um, the matter that forms uh, the basis of the question I'm about to pose to you simply because I am a man and I have no experience with uh, birthing a child into this world. But when we we take into consideration the multiple ways in which this COVID-19 pandemic has impacted people, lives in terms of their ability to um, earn an income, their ability to find or retain their um, their means of employment, their um, ability to sustain themselves uh, to varying degrees. When um, when women or, or young women or uh, girl children are faced with situations where they fall pregnant and they find themselves with no other option but to explore abortion as yeah. a, a as a means means to 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 navigate the circumstance that they're in is there any sort of is there any sort of space to consider how medically necessary an abortion would be during a pandemic yo oh that is very very difficult to answer i think that it's it's quite medically based what you what you what you're stating i can't necessarily go too much in terms of the medical of it but you know it's it's if it's going to put the life of an individual and the circumstances in which they then start spending for the child in jeopardy, then that does in many ways and at times um, prove to be a good reason. And I think, you know, good is also, again, very much a, a subjective standpoint. But we've got to remember that the best interest of any child is, is always based on whether or not the individual caring for the child is able to do so in terms of a holistic capacity. So we're not just talking about being able to physically feed the child or to clothe the child, but nurturance is also something that is of great importance. And if in the context that you find yourself in, you are unable to do that to a substantial capacity and you don't have the support around you, whether it be a parent, uh, um, a, a distant family member, whoever else it might be, who can assist you in that, whether it be helping you support the child or you handing the child over into an adoptive space, then we need to be liberal enough as human beings and as people to acknowledge that sometimes the best option is to allow for all parties to be able to move forward. It is not a judgmental space. It is an option-based space. And that's where a lot of, uh, in terms of your mental health and your sense of capacity in your mental well-being is often rooted. Because it's where they're now stigmatizing individuals and pointing fingers based on a decision that, at the end of the day, would do all parties good favor. Then we're kind of pushing back the options and the... Um, the, the, the alternatives that do exist in a democratic society that we're living in. So we're medically based in terms of from a psychological and psychosocial standpoint, what your context gives you and can provide for you beyond just the physical. We need to then be aware that that's what a child also needs, not just the physical aspect of, you know, growth in terms of feeding, as I was saying, or clothing, but the nurturance, the attention, the time and the capacity from, um, um, a support and and um, love love space, a love language, a vulnerability standpoint. 
All right. Now, I would like to lean more into your um your your, your expertise as a, as a psychologist for uh, my the next question that I'm about to pose towards you. Do you think that the resources that were meant for reproductive and sexual health were diverted to the emergency response at the height of this uh, COVID nineteen pandemic, contributing to a rise in maternal mortality? And would, in your opinion, do you think the further cut of women and children from sexual and reproductive health services? Threatens to um, see a sharp rise in maternal and neonatal mortality. Mm, I, I, I do definitely feel that at the time of the beginning of this entire pandemic, I think everyone was in definitely a panic mode. And what we naturally then need to do is try and figure out how can we preserve life to the best of our ability. And what we often seem to feel, and which is rightfully so, that a beating heart is something that needs to then be attended to. And that is very much more within the medical um, realm of the domain of healthcare professionals. So in that regard, of course, you know, some resources were pooled because where the psychological aspects then come in, they tend to be very much more after the fact. So it's a symptomology which shows itself a little bit more, but the root nevertheless still stays within a health, a, a, um, a mental health-based space. But we, we tend to overlook that again, as I'm saying, because we're trying to preserve life from a heartbeat space. So, you know, in, in moving forward, it's it's just... We, we need to kind of allow and be aware of what we have control over in that regard and allowing people to kind of also just attend to what it is they can in the moment that they can. So if a physical issue is what is what we're dealing with, then we should then attend to that as we've been done, you know, in the beginning of, of the pandemic. And then we then just catch what happens after the fact, which tends to be how um, the psychological space kind of plays itself out. It's, I, I think it's very possible. I think it's very possible. I, I, I wouldn't be able to fully, you know, give my opinion on that again because it is very much from a medical standpoint, unfortunately. But we need to remember that medical and or mental and physical health go quite hand in hand. So if there is one that is falling, so we find that maybe the, the, the mental health might not necessarily be doing very well, it will show up in the physical and that can then lead to other physical-based ailments and possibly death, whether it be from a neonatal space or, um, you know, the, 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 um, the, the young girls going through whatever difficulties that they may be going through. So it's more of a hand-in-hand conversation, but I do think it's very, very possible. You know, we, 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 if we drop the ball in one end, something else down the line will definitely show itself out and we need to be very careful and aware of that possibility. So yes, absolutely. In your opinion then, what are some of the critical response plans in relation to everything that we've learned from this COVID-19 pandemic? What are some of the critical response plans that are needed to be put in place in order to consider both the indirect and direct health impacts on uh, women and, uh, and girl children as it pertains to these, um, these increasing worries of the lack of access to these health services? Creating wider and more um, accessible areas for support. So in, in areas particularly that are not quite as well resourced. You know, any type of response is, is always from, a, should be at least from a standpoint of true and earnest intervention. And if the intervention isn't necessarily speaking to the reason and the needs of the particular area, then we've kind of failed. So in response to everything that we're experiencing within this COVID space, it's in and around placing space and, and accessibility in all spheres at all times and for it to be well-versed, for it to be well-researched and for it to be grounded in the things that people are most complaining about, 
whether it be from a mental health space, from a physical health space, or all-inclusive, as long as there's a combination of recognizing that both, as I said, are mutually inclusive, then um, the response would be quite effective, but also very, very immediate, because we're touching in one place in the hopes and the awareness that it'll always trickle down and kind of um, attach and, and touch itself and, and cover all the spaces that it needs to, in essence. Now, do you think that gender has played an important part in the primary and secondary impacts of the current sexual and reproductive health care emergency that we're facing? And in your opinion, how do we then examine some of the secondary effects that this crisis is having on women with a special focus on sexual and reproductive health? Mm. The impact of gender, I mean, it's always going to be there. Um, there, are, there are some similarities, but I think the thing that kind of brings us to a head are the major differences that do exist. And the way in which we deal and handle things is therefore also very, very different. So what what it is you then do with um, the differences is how it is we then build and create that, little, that, that sense of strength and capacity beyond the, the, the explicit differences. So whether it be the same or not, I don't think would be the clinical question or the point in which that we need to kind of focus a lot of energy on, but rather understand how it is we can use the yin and the yang, for lack of a bit of explanation, in order for one to pick the other up when the other is down and vice versa. Um, it, ne- it should never be a comparative or comparison standpoint, but just um, an acceptance and, and, and an acknowledgement of each to its own and in combination. So working together to, to, to kind of pick up where the other one fails, I think. All right, and I think that serves as a very neat segue to um, this section of the conversation that I think um, you would be a lot more comfortable having, seeing as a lot of the questions that I posed towards you in the first um, section of our conversation were more medically orientated, and I and I don't want to put you on the spot um, for, for longer than you need to be as far as answering to... Um, to questions you might not be the best person to answer to. So I think I'm very comfortable um, in the knowledge that the next section of uh, questions that I have uh, towards you are more linked uh, to um, a a space that you can speak on with much more detail as as far as the psychological impact of the the, the growing restrictions to the access of these important um, health services that women need. When it comes to the matter of... uh, of of women birthing children into this world during mm-hmm. um, during the height of this pandemic, during the continued fight against mm-hmm. this pandemic. In your opinion, um, uh, have we seen? Are we seeing, or are we likely to see a significant increase in depression, both in the short term and longer term, in new mothers? And what are the ways that um, the 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 other members of society, and I'm I'm speaking in particular to um, the fathers of these children, um, the family members on either side of 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 the uh, of the um the, the the exchange that 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 facilitated the birth of this child into this world and other members of society how do we go about examining and combating these um increasing levels of depression that we are starting to see in new mothers mm-hmm. you know i think you know, it, it wouldn't be fair for me to kind of just give a blank response of yes or no in terms of the short term and the long term and how it would kind of avail itself. But rather, it definitely depends on the quality of support when it avails itself. If it is um, intentional and true in terms of um, how it is the mother is carried and supported and held, then the likelihood of it 
going beyond the term of just a postnatal space of those first couple of months or years is, is very contextually and situationally based. But then we do find that, you know, if you catch the problem symptomatically at an early stage, everything should be fine and well negotiated for. So when it comes in, when we consider it's the family and the husbands or the fathers in these instances, it's just about having intentional presence, you know, in as much as possible insofar as, you know, your work commitments and, you know, the health and safety of the child. But the reality of the, ti- of the time that we are living in right now is that there are still very many uncertainties. And we just go with the flow and, as I said earlier, pay attention to the things that you are seeing. It's not anything you should be aware of who your partner is. You should be aware of what it is, is the norm and the abnormal for them. And then ask the questions. Have direct and certain conversations. But apart from that, you know, it's just about reminding the parent and mother more than anything that it's not just her living for her child and it's not just the child living for the parent. When we're trying to expand our um, connections and the people that we engage with, a sense of reliving outside of the cocoon, the cocoon that parents and mothers very often find themselves in creates a region of rejuvenation of life and a reason and purpose for motivation and um, engagement outside of, of, of the home space. So it's very dependent, it's very wide, but the nice thing about it is that it can always be rectified when we're paying attention, when we're having intentional conversations, and we're just nipping things in the bud as soon as we notice them. Because knowing that you care and are paying attention, that's a lot for um, the, the mother and, and the child and the, the parental individuals who can easily find themselves being isolated or feeling isolated um, and, and their lives just being for their children. So, yeah, it, it, it varies, you know, context to context, situation to situation. Now, Palisa, you touched on this earlier, but I would love for you to expound on this um, in as much detail as you can and um, really re- really give us as much insight as you can into the observations you've made about the ways in which, um, if, we, if I can take you back to the very height of this COVID-19 pandemic and all of those social distancing, isolation and quarantine procedures were implemented and put in place, how do those increase the risk? of psychological problems among pregnant women and new mothers. I mean, off the top of my head, I'm thinking about the ways in which this pandemic has impacted uh, something as as straightforward as being able to visit someone um, mm. when they're in hospital, being able to being able to mm. be there when um, when someone is giving birth, and how these mm. restrictions have impacted all of that. Can you talk me through the ways in which um, these social distancing and isolation or quarantine procedures may have a potential risk of further impacting um, and further causing more psychological problems amongst pregnant women and new mothers? Of course. They, they definitely can. I think we touched quite rightly on aspects surrounding to having to separate so much and not being able to come into contact. You know, when you think about the gestational period and just where it starts, it's from the point of conception in and of itself. It's very often um, a two, two-person intervention, right? So there's the woman and the man, or however it is, you know, um, else you might be deciding to have your child, and those two come together. So there's immediately a point of contact. There's immediately a point of nurture and intimacy. And then throughout the, the development of the child and the gestational period as a whole, different elements continue to still come together from the time that it is, you know, the little atom going into it being a full nucleus and then becoming 
child itself and then, you know, being implanted into the womb. So throughout all those processes and throughout all those months, there's a coming together, there's a creation, there's a combination in order for this little being to be created. And then you come into a space of the, the, the pandemic and everything now has to be separated. Where the process of unification, which is how a child comes into being made, is now forced to be almost cut down the middle. You know, there's the distancing of all sorts of activities where the very thing that was supposed to bring us together and create that connection is now being forcibly torn apart. And what that then does for an incoming mother, or even sometimes when it's not just your first child, it can sometimes be your second or your third child, but because the environment and the way in which you're having to now engage and um, make sense of how to mother in this new environment is so different, it can feel very, very, very isolating. Isolating in that, as I said earlier, going to doctor's appointments possibly by yourself, and also having to tackle the prospect and the possibility of not being able to have your partner in the room with you. I know that, you know, with, with regulations having been kind of reduced a little bit and um, more things opening up, there's possibly been that new introduction of allowing your partner into, into the birthing space with you. But that is still quite limited, you know. So now you're having to grapple with, okay, so when I go into the hospital space, which is sometimes the very of where um, the COVID cases find themselves, you are then wondering, am I going to go home with COVID even though I entered without it? Am I now going to become um, responsible for having to take care of a child of mine who may possibly contract the, 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 the virus itself? So there's so many elements and unfortunately invisible elements because that is what COVID-19 the virus is. There's so many invisible elements of this entire situation that you're not only having to deal with for yourself as the individual having the child, but then also having to think for the child beyond just the day-to-day planning that you've done in the past of prenatal classes, of how to take care and feed and clothe, you know, and change that and so forth. There are so many more layers that have been added and and continue to multiply, but then also change from a day-to-day perspective. And if we're not necessarily certain as to what to fully prepare for, because, you know, sometimes, you know, they they do give you those books of what to expect and you're expecting, and they do kind of, you know, outline, but the reality between theory and, 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 and the reality of it in practice are very, very, very different. And that's where a lot of the difficulties, especially for new incumbent mothers, comes in. Because now you're then left with this child, often even in the hospital perhaps, and having to deal with so many different um, aspects and, and, and levels and layers that come with being a parent in this new environment. And again, as I said, so because it's so isolating, there's not as much internal home-based support that you would often be expecting to to rely on. So whether it be, you know, um, a distant parent maybe coming and moving in with you guys because of travel restrictions, maybe having as without your mother or you yourself to go and and be um, supported by your parents. So now you're having to try and figure it out by yourself. You know, in addition to that, we then end up having sleepless nights. And sleep is very, very important. But if you're by yourself, there's a lot of anxiety that can often find itself creeping in and building up but you're not necessarily feeling or knowing whether or not you're doing the right thing. So that sense of guilt then begins to emerge. So we've first got the lack of sense of lack of support. We already have the sleepless night. Then we have the, the guilt that might be creeping in about, am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing, especially if I'm a new mother, because I don't know what is expected of me. And from that 
kind of can easily escalate into a full-blown sense of depression where sometimes we, a parent can easily feel a little bit resentful towards their, to their child because there's constantly this crying, there's constantly this feeling as though I am not doing for you what you need. And it's so hard when you're putting so much effort in as a parent, as a mother, feeling as though you might be doing the right thing, but your child might not necessarily be responding. And if your child isn't responding, the almost immediate effect is that, okay, so I must be the one who is not creating the correct bond. I must be the one as a mother who is not doing what is expected. And so, again, it's just adding on in terms of guilt, in terms of uncertainty, in terms of feeling inadequate for something that you are, quote-unquote, supposed to know how to do naturally. So we have pressures, we have expectations, we have feelings of judgment and um, a lack of almost immediate, um, if, I, if I can call it immediate, respond to whether or not you're doing right. So if you don't necessarily get a report card that says, oh, yes, you got an A over here, or oh, no, you got a B. You sort of go with flow. And flow can sometimes be very, very hard to fully consume and to swallow because the immediate gratification isn't necessarily there. And that's what a lot of society-based expectations and conversations, discourses around mothering often come in, that you should be able to have this immediate sense of, gratitude, excitement, um, enthusiasm, love. And sometimes it doesn't necessarily play itself out that way. And so when you're aware of these feelings, which are from your context coming in, from the support around you coming in, but then not necessarily aligning with what it is you are thinking and feeling at that moment in time, it creates a lot of conflicting perspectives, understandings, and and, um, um, knowledge bases, which don't necessarily seem to align but then also kind of speak true to where it is you are right now. So you're questioning yourself, and then we just get into a place of self-doubt. So we get depressive, we get down on ourselves, and the ability to move forward can sometimes be overwhelming and very, very hard. And then we get the introduction of what's often known as postnatal depression, where it's just it's an overwhelming and over, yeah, um, an incumbent sense of disbelief and, 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 and sadness at what seems to be an inability to be the mother that you've always wanted to be. So that can be hard, disheartening sometimes. I imagine it can be. And um, for, for all of the time that we've spent um, talking about how these issues impact new mothers, um, mm. mothers who are giving birth to their very first um, children and um, birthing them into this world, my, my other area of interest is related to those who are going on this merry-go-round for a second time or a third time. I myself happen to be a sibling and I can't help but think of how my own mother um, dealt with these issues of postpartum depression, postnatal depression um, Mm. after she gave birth to me versus after she gave birth to my my younger sibling. Now, when it it comes to that um, instance of a woman who who perhaps is giving birth to her second or even her third child, do these issues become easier to deal with or are they just a lot more complex, a different wave of issues for them to deal with? And and, and how do they go about uh, combating these issues the second time around after having done so the first? It can be possibly even sometimes worse the second time around where you, you, know, you, you almost have that... Um, Implicit confidence that I've done this before. I know what I'm doing. I've done this, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm constantly comfortable in what it is I am 
getting myself into. And then you have this new child who is a completely different personality, who is going to naturally have a completely different set of needs. And where your capacities and your competencies and your senses of, of ability were so strong, you then start knocking yourself because now you feel like you're probably doing it wrong the second time around, which is not necessarily the truth at all, only because, you know, anytime you come into a space of trying to understand individuals and especially youngsters, I always suggest and, and, and shy away from the comparative aspect because if we're comparing one from the other, there will always be things that will fall through and there will always be those differences. And instead of embracing them, what we then do is start questioning, okay, but how did this formula not work or where did I miss out a particular thing that worked the last time? And that automatically and almost instantaneously prevents a sense of um, not having played your cards the way you should have. So with parents who are second, third, and, and down the line, I always encourage them to just kind of place themselves and take a step back and acknowledge what it is, number one, is working. Start from that standpoint, because believe it or not, there is something that you have done right you, and will continue to do right. So start from that standpoint of understanding, okay, so when my child does this particular thing and I do this in response, it works. And then build from there. It has to be a clean slate. It has to be a clean sheet. And it has to be a brand new canvas that you and your child are painting together outside of the siblings, outside of, 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 of the, excuse me, the other, um, the other experiences that you've come into. Those just need to be notches on your belt about recognizing that your first child or your second child is able to, to, to hone and handle and, and assimilate with you. But from, from a different perspective and from a different time and from a different um, sense of support space that now you are now coming into, the things that have worked in the past won't necessarily always come into as easy um, a, stand, a standpoint as with the children that might follow. So give yourself a sense of, you know, grace, if I can call it that, to acknowledge that the differences aren't necessarily an indicator of your being incorrect or incapable, but rather they're an indicator of just having to try to do things differently. Difference isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's just change. So in embracing the changes that then are being requested of you and asked of you, then a greater sense of capacity will almost immediately be developed. But again, it comes from recognizing, number one, the fact that things aren't um, going well. And this is where, you know, fathers and external partners then come in. Noting, okay, so I see that you're struggling over here. I can see that you're not necessarily doing well. You seem like you're feeling a little bit more down. Where can I come in? What do you need? So in asking that simple question of what do you need, the individual who is then feeling overwhelmed can then give directive and a sense of capacity is then built. And once that sense of capacity is then built, then there's a little bit um, greater sense of, okay, so I'm doing something correct, as I'm saying. So now you start from a major, a basic point of, okay, so what is working? And so when you guys are having a general conversation as a family about how can I support you, what do you need, what is working, then we start building. Those are basically the building and foundational blocks of any type of um, new, new, yeah, new, new space of developing of the, the expansion of our family and the expansion of this new life that we've brought into this world. It's, it's, it's not an easy conversation to have, but if we call it out in the beginning and take note of it in the beginning, whether it be your first child or it be your 14th child, 
the experience has to be different because no two individuals are made same. In the same way, the way you respond as a parent, whether it be your third child or your 14th child, will not be the same. And that too is okay. Indeed, and I think this is a great way uh, to round off our conversation. My next and final question to you is an absolute doozy because it's something that I've been thinking about a lot um, in my own capacity, not necessarily related to any issues uh, pertaining to um, a lack of access to sexual and reproductive health, but just thinking in, in an all-encompassing way about the ways in which I've, I've seen instances of this COVID-19 pandemic impacting people's mental health, the various ways in which it has impacted people's mental health. And then when we zero in on the issue at hand, talking about how um, mothers, new mothers, and um, and second or third time mothers uh, alike have all been equally impacted by these issues. And the scale of the work that needs to be done in order to to hold them and and, and, and provide that, that safety net of support for them, especially in this circumstance that we've only familiarized ourselves with for the last two and a half years of our lives. But Lessa, in your opinion, and according to uh, the insight that you have as a psychologist in this field, do you believe that the COVID-19 pandemic can be recognized as a significant threat to our physical and mental well-being? And if, if, if so, what are the most effective ways uh, to address this? What needs to, what needs to be done from a societal level, from government level, from a, from, from a leadership level to raise awareness of, of uh, this issue? How, how potentially dangerous to everyone's mental and physical health this COVID-19 pandemic can be as far as whether or not it can be recognized as a significant threat? Mm, no, I think my short answer to that is absolutely. It is um, a duality in it being physical and mental, um, a mental health, well-being space or, or, or threat, as you had stated. You know, we, we, as I said to you earlier, these, these, these two cannot at all be considered to be exclusive. They are mutually inclusive. As um, There's a breakdown in one area, as I said. It naturally plays out within the others. You know, we tend to forget that we are holistic beings. And so where there is this harmony in whatever sphere, whether be from a physical space, a mental space, a spiritual, a spiritual space, then there's always going to be a breakdown in your well-being. And that's why therapy in and of itself is always so important, not only as a resulting um, intervention because something has gone wrong, but as an everyday touch base with yourself and, and, and recognizing where it is things are, are falling awry. And so anytime when, 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 when I have such conversations or just dealing with individuals in this space, I always do just kind of go back to the ground, the, the ground level. And I might sound like I'm repeating myself, but it really is the simple where it's pay attention to the signs. You know, your, your body and, and the way in it, which it relates to you in terms of interpersonal space or in intrapersonal, where it's by yourself, will always tell you when something is not going well, when something is having a little bit of a niggle, when something is, is in need of further support. And what we tend to not do is um, take time for ourselves from a quote-unquote self-care space, take time for ourselves and note where it is we place ourselves and how it is we know that we're in a good space so that when there is a shift or a lack of um, 
consistency or, or, or comfortability, then we're able to stand up almost immediately and do something about it. And from a psychological, mental wealth, a mental well-being state of mind, it's having that so that that full awareness and introspection with yourself for retrospect from what has happened in the past and taking place and taking note of what is taking place right now and doing almost like an audit of where it is things have shifted and how it is they have shifted and for what reason and then taking stock stock and then readjusting if and when necessary. So when you consider from a grander scale of beyond just the microsystem, so the self going, I mean, the macro system and going beyond oneself, you know, governmental spheres are just having to kind of listen and, 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 and provide the services in a space that is accessible across the board. So accessibility is everything from a language basis to just transport accessibility to a consistent and effective and and reliable standpoint more than anything else. You know, it's it's the conversation in and around when, how and why. When is it available in terms of the consistency consistency how in terms of when people need it can they access it and in the why in order to gain full strength and capacity to be the best that you can be so we can't separate we can't include and exclude we just need to consider the combination of the two because all in itself speak to one another and feed each other so we just kind of consistently need to stay in that space of recognizing that you know when 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 all facets or all cogs in the sphere are, are well oiled, then it's very easy to kind of catch it should it fall or should it need a little bit more support or aid in whatever space that might be. Absolutely. Amazing conversation we've just been having here on the COVID Report with our amazing guest psychologist, Pale Sakhadebe, joining us on the COVID Report to unpack the ways in which the COVID-19 pandemic has affected women's ability to access sexual and reproductive health services over the course of this pandemic and how the, the, the tricky circumstances that we've been living under for the last two and a half years in the form of this COVID-19 pandemic has further exacerbated the impact on mental health. Balesa, thank you so much for the wonderful insight that you've given us on this conversation and everything that you've contributed towards it. And uh, please enjoy the rest of your evening. And thank you so much for your time and for joining us on the show. This podcast was brought to you by Voice of Vids. By Voice of Vids. To hear more of our shows, tune in to 88.1. Or stream by www.vafm.co.za.